Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we come in our study of Matthew to chapter 17 to the account of where the disciples attempt to cast out a demon and are not able to do so, and then Jesus' words to them. So let's read together, beginning in Matthew 17, 14, down through verse 21. This is God's word. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Let's pray. God and Father, We thank you for your word, and we pray by the Spirit that you would open it to us this day. We pray that you would convict us, and at the same time, we pray that you would build us up and strengthen us and encourage us and fill us full of faith, hope, and love. To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is one of these strange little passages from a number of perspectives Uh, First of all, Jesus' words to the disciples here, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? It seems to us kind of harsh, kind of rough. The other thing is this passage doesn't seem to connect with what else is going on in Matthew. This is immediately after the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? We saw that last week. Uh, Jesus had been talking to the disciples about what discipleship means and the utter, complete loyalty to Him that is the essence of discipleship. And what it boils down to is, are you willing to die for Jesus? Because that is exactly what they were looking at. And so He talks to them about discipleship. He tells them His crucifixion is coming. He takes the three principal disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see Jesus in his glory. They see Moses and Elijah um, visiting with Jesus. And now they just come down from the mountain and the other nine disciples are down there dealing with this situation where this man has come who has a, a son who is suffering from demon possession. Now, it says in verse 15 that he is an epileptic and, and suffers severely. And a lot of times we see that and we go, well, maybe this is just ancient ignorance and superstition that, you know, this young man's an epileptic and so they have to ascribe it to demon possession. But that's not what's going on. The ancient world, believe it or not, was well acquainted with epilepsy. They knew what that was, okay? And they had a word for it. And the word that's in this verse is not that word. Their word for epilepsy is not this word. So... Uh, it confuses us in the English, okay? But it's not confusing in the Greek. This, he has fits, but it's due to demon possession. It's not epilepsy, okay? So anyway, he brings him uh, to the disciples, and they cannot cure him. They cannot cast the demon out. So then Jesus has these what seem to be harsh words for the disciple. He accuses them of being part of a faith, faithless and perverse uh, generation. Now, those are words we've heard before Jesus use 
of the generation in general of Israel at that time. But now he's saying this to the disciples. He's saying to them as being part of this, as evidencing somehow this faithlessness and this perverseness. And again, this just seems to come out of nowhere. After this, Jesus is going to once again predict that he's going to the cross and so forth, and the passage moves on, and we just kind of come to the conclusion, well, this just must be, you know, Matthew is just writing kind of a hodgepodge of recollections that he has of Jesus. And, oh yeah, there was the time when the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, and Jesus said this, and so he just happens to remember it, so he happens to stick it on, at this part of the gospel. So that's a head-scratcher, and we can't figure that one out. And then we can't really figure out what Jesus is saying. This is one of those passages we just kind of go, huh, and move on to something that we feel like we understand better. Well, let's look at this, because I think when we do, we'll see that uh, in every way, this this passage does fit in with what is going on in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not a hodgepodge of recollections. There is a story, there is a point being made here by Matthew. This fits into that point perfectly. And also, when we start pressing in here, we start seeing and understanding why Jesus said these words. What was the problem? What was he rebuking the disciples about? What kind of faith was he looking for from them? And also, what kind of faith is he looking for from us? Well, remember, if we go all the way back in the Gospel of Matthew, the basic point of Matthew is that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. He is God in the flesh. And as God in the flesh, he is reliving, he is recapitulating, as it were, the story of Israel playing both parts. Because Jesus is Israel, and Jesus is Jehovah. He is the God-man. He is fully God, fully man. He is God with us. That is what Emmanuel means. But as fully man, if he is God with us, he is also man with God. And so Jesus takes on the whole story of Israel that has brought Israel to this tragic conclusion where she's going to kill her own Messiah. That's this downward spiral that she's on. Jesus, the God-man, takes all of that on himself, the whole story of Israel, and he plays both parts. He plays Israel's part. He's the perfect, faithful believer who trusts the Father and always does what the Father uh, uh, is pleased with. And therefore, the Father loves him and is well-pleased with him at all times. He also takes on the role of Jehovah. And when we, read the, New, uh, when we knew, uh, read the New Testament carefully, we see these references like in 1 Corinthians 10 where it tells us that Christ was the rock that followed Israel in the desert. He was the one who stood before Moses in the pillar of fire over the rock that Mo- when Mo- Moses strikes the rock with the rod that brings the curses on Egypt. Here comes this rod of judgment right down through the middle of the pillar of fire. It's like a a God himself being stricken, God himself being cursed, and then here comes the water of life. Well, it's Jesus who's standing there. That's what we're told. And so the one who is with Israel all the time in the desert is now with her again, except he is fully man as well as fully God this time. So he plays the part of God, he plays the part of Israel, combined together, perfect God, perfect man, loving God, faithful man, trusting man, coming together, going to the cross to bury evil, to bury sin, to be raised from the dead, to make heaven and earth new. That's what's going on. And so we've seen that in this story how Jesus takes on the role of these different great figures of the faith from the Old Testament. And the first one he takes on is Moses. And we see, we've seen how in his ministry he recapitulates the life and ministry of Moses. We've seen how he recapitulates the life and ministry of David. He is the greater son of David, the Lord of the Sabbath. You remember that? He takes on the life of Solomon. He's the greater Solomon who has even greater wisdom than the wisest man who has ever lived. But when we get to this part, we kind of go, well, who, who is he now? What is this? How does this fit in? Well, 
the episode of Israel's history that is evoked by this whole section here, including uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, is that part of Israel's history that took place during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Now, think about it. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? The disciples see, or the three principal disciples see, Elijah appearing along with Moses and speaking to Jesus. So Elijah has just appeared during the Transfiguration. When they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples ask Jesus about Malachi's prophecy that Elijah would return and restore all things. In other words, restore Israel to where she needed to be. So they've asked about Elijah. When is he coming back? And Jesus has just identified to them now for the second time at least that John the Baptist was the new Elijah, the new and greater Elijah to come to restore God's people. And of course, we see that this doesn't mean, it did not mean at that time, that everybody in Israel is going to be restored to true faith in in Jehovah. But it's going to be a remnant, a new faith community, a new Israel within Israel that is going to be prepared for the Lord and turned to God and restored in that faithfulness. So John the Baptist is creating a new Israel within Israel, a new faithful Israel within the generally apostate Israel. Now, that's exactly what Elijah did back in his ministry that we read about in 1 Kings. He created a faith community. Now, that doesn't jump out at us if you go back and read the episode. What jumps out at us is the great miracles that Elijah worked and the great standoff Elijah had with the prophets of Baal. And John read that to us this morning in the scripture reading. 450 prophets of Baal. Israel's in horrible condition at the time. She's being characterized by apostasy and idolatry at the highest level. The king is Ahab, one of the wickedest kings ever had. His wife is Jezebel. You know her. Um, and she's wicked. She's a, uh, uh, from the... Uh, peoples uh, really of Canaanite descent who worship Baal, and she's a Canaanite princess, So, and she's horrible. And you have 450 prophets of Baal. That just shows you the extensiveness of Baal worship and, and a turning away from God into paganism that was happening at that time in Israel. Now, that's when Elijah's ministry. But one of the things is there, but you have to look for it. If you look for it, you'll see it. If you don't look for it, you'll probably miss it. Elijah also, within, through all these miracles and this great standoff against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he is creating a new Israel within Israel. He's creating a new faith community. Okay, We have this standoff, and you know it's one of the great stories in the Bible where you know, the, the prophets of Baal, they dance around and cut themselves and do all the things that people who worship demons end up doing. Um, and no fire comes down from heaven. And then Elijah, um, and this is, this is what you call um, biblical trash talking. This is what you call biblical trash talk, biblical strutting in the name of God. You know, I, uh, Elijah has the altar to the Lord doused with water over and over and over again, you know. And uh, he mocks Baal. He mocks the prophets of Baal. This is some serious trash talk going on here, but it's godly trash talk. And um, now, young men, there's a, there's a real art to godly trash talk. So don't just go out and, and try it, okay? You're probably going to get it wrong. So, but then God brings down the fire. Well, Elijah's prayer to God is that for, he says, Oh, Lord, hear me, hear me that this people may know you are the Lord God, and you have turned their hearts back to you again. Okay, now that's what the new Elijah is supposed to do. That's what John the Baptist does. Then fire falls down from heaven from the Lord, consumes the sacrifice, 
And then listen to this. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now, there's the new faith community, the new Israel within Israel that's being formed up. It starts at this point. And as you read forward, you start finding references uh, to what is called the sons of the prophets. The sons of the prophets are these faithful guys. And you start realizing it's really kind of like the band of the apostles who are followers of Elijah and then Elisha. They're faithful. So you have this new faith community being formed up and you have new leaders within it. So that's one of the important things that's being done. Elijah starts that process and then just when he would seem to be at the very pinnacle of his ministry, God takes him away. He's taken out of the picture. He leaves the stage. He exits. He's gone. Now that's not the way we would do it, but that's the way God did it. And we see the same thing with John the Baptist. Elijah is taken up, as we know, in a chariot of fire, which is a, a description of the glory cloud, up into heaven. And uh, so John the Baptist was taken out at what we would think was the very height of his ministry. You know, he's about uh, 30 years old or so, and he, he's really rolling. He's building this faith community. Uh, he's preaching like nobody's business. God's really using him, and then gone, dead, martyred, gone. Well, what happens in uh, 1 Kings and then transitioning into 2 Kings is that Elijah takes up, Elisha takes up the mantle of Elijah. And we know that as great as Elijah was, Elisha receives a double portion of the spirit that Elijah has. So, the Spirit of God that's working in Elijah so mightily is twice as powerful, working twice as much in the ministry of Elisha. So Elisha carries forward this ministry of forming up a new faithful community within Israel. Okay, so if John the Baptist is the new and greater Elijah, who's Elisha? Well, it's Jesus. I mean, that's what Elijah hands the baton off to Elisha. And John the Baptist hands the baton off to Jesus. And he's taken out of the picture, John the Baptist is. Jesus, John the Baptist is the one who was filled with the Spirit while in his mother's womb. How do you top that? Well, the Bible tells us Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. Okay, you see that picture? Elijah, Elisha. John the Baptist, and Jesus. So Jesus is carrying on and perfecting this work that God started through John the Baptist of forming up the new community characterized by faith and faithfulness. Okay, This helps us understand why this episode is going on, and it helps us understand the emphasis on faith here in our text concerning this demon-possessed boy that the remaining nine disciples could not help. Now, Jesus here calls the disciples members of a faithless and perverse generation. Verse 17. Now, faithless can mean unbelieving or it can mean unfaithful, failing to believe as one really should and to act it out. Perverse means literally uh, bent, or twisted, or distorted, or therefore turned aside, turned off of the path. You know, sometimes uh, when you sleep, you get up in the morning, and your hair is, you know, it's, it's going every way that it shouldn't go. And when you try to comb it, if you just try to comb it, it's not going where you want it to go. It's going to stay put, you know, and you've got to really work and wet it and so forth. Uh, to get it to behave. And that's a picture of this word here, perverse. It's bent. Therefore, it refers to somebody uh, prone to misinterpret, to misunderstand, to take the wrong position, to oppose things they shouldn't, to advocate things they shouldn't, and so forth. Now, at first blush, when we come to this and we give it the standard interpretation... Jesus is is rebuking the disciples for not having enough faith, not enough quantity of faith at this instant. 
for not having sufficiently big faith to do what Jesus did, which is issue a simple command and have the demon instantly obey. Okay, that's the way we normally interpret it. But if we look at this more closely, we see that interpretation really has a number of problems. Okay? The first indication we get of the problems with that interpretation is that Jesus tells the disciples that if they have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you, verse 20. Now, a mustard seed is not a big, huge, muscle-bound faith. A mustard seed is not that way. It's not the biggest of the seeds. It's the littlest of the seeds. So a mustard seed is barely visible. And it's used by Jesus himself in his parables as a picture of something that is extremely small, almost non-existent. So Jesus says, if you have a mustard seed of faith... So Jesus' point to the disciples here is not that they lacked the great amount of faith necessary to move a mountain instantly or to cast out a demon instantly. His point is that they lacked even a mustard seed of faith. Okay. Now this means either that the disciples lacked any faith whatsoever. They have no faith. None. Or it means that Jesus isn't really focused on the quantity of faith to do instant miracles, but he's focused on something else. Something relating not so much to the quantity of faith, but to the quality or the makeup of their faith. And this latter interpretation, which I think is correct, is made more likely... When we look at Jesus' point to them in verse 21, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. He tells them this kind of demon does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, prayer and fasting is not something that can be done quickly. Prayer and fasting, by very definition, takes time, particularly when you add in the fasting part. You can't show up at a restaurant, order your food, and then when it sits there on the table, shoot up a quick prayer and a quick fast before you eat. And somebody asks you, well, what did you do today? Oh, I was praying and fasting. I was praying and fasting. What, for like a second? That's not, no, that's not fasting. So prayer and fasting means something that takes time, Right? So prayer and fasting here and elsewhere in the Bible are code words for sustained, concentrated, pressing into God in prayer concerning a particular matter. Sustained, concentrated, pressing into God in prayer concerning a particular matter. One of the best examples we have of this is in the life of David after David has sinned horribly against God and against others, um, he's, uh, he's committed adultery uh, with Bathsheba. He has arranged to kill Uriah, her husband, along with other men whose names we don't even know, so it could all be covered up. David has done all that. Then David repents. He repents, but God tells him that the child that Bathsheba is pregnant with is going to die. Well, David prays and fasts. He's on his face, he prays, and he fasts. All right? Now, what is that? That is David pressing in. He's pressing in to God in persistent, concentrated prayer for the life of this child. Okay? That's what prayer and fasting signify, that kind of pressing in to God. Okay? So it does not appear that Jesus was faulting the disciples for not being able to do what he did, which is instantly cast out the demon with a single command. It appears he wanted them to press in, to turn to God in concentrated and persistent prayer and fasting 
trusting not in power that was resonant in them, even as apostles, but trusting in the power of God to cast out the demon, as well as the faithfulness and the love of God to do just that. That's what he's looking for, because he tells them, for you, this kind does not come out, except by prayer and fasting. So it's this persevering, pressing in over time kind of faith, which is the difference between giving up when the demon is not immediately cast out, which is what the disciples did, evidently, and praying and fasting, looking to God and not giving up. That seems to be the element of faith that Jesus says they lacked even a mustard seed up. That particular kind of faith, that particular element of faith, they lacked even a mustard seed of. Clearly, it is not true that they had no faith whatsoever. They have been following Jesus for quite some time now through thick and thin. They have, in fact, casted out demons before in his name. So it is not true that they lack even a mustard seed of faith generally. They lack even a mustard seed of this kind of faith that presses in and perseveres in concentrated prayer to God, trusting in Him to act, okay? Now, this kind of faith or this aspect of faith that they lacked appears to be part of the faithlessness and perverseness that characterized Jesus as a whole, I mean, uh, Israel as a whole. And that's why Jesus is lamenting the entire generation, including, in this case, the, apostles, I mean, the, the disciples. So clearly, it's not a problem of having no faith at all. Surely, just as the disciples had faith in general in Jesus, there were many in Israel who had some faith in the God of Israel and in Jesus because this new faithful community is being formed up at this time. So our standard interpretation that when we can't do instant miracles, it's because we don't have enough faith. And we need to get on some sort of spiritual steroids so our faith muscles are bulging out of our shirts and we're able to do miracles on the spot. This would seem to completely miss the point here. Completely miss what Jesus is getting at. Note that the, the mountain that faith moves in this case is not moved in an instant. The mountain that faith moves in this case is not moved in an instant. The mountain that faith moves in this case is a mountain that is only moved by prayer and fasting. Right? And yet Jesus says, if you have a mustard seed of that kind of faith, that perseveres and presses in and does not give up, you will move mountains. But it's not something that happens instantly. Now, Jesus' emphasis here on this kind of persevering, trusting, believing, not giving up kind of faith points us back to the fact that faith, as Jesus made clear in the Sermon on the Mount, Faith is really a function of relationship. Faith is a function of relationship. In other words, faith is a function of knowing God. Faith is a function of knowing God. And to know God, the first thing you have to know is who He is. You have to know who He is so that you want to know Him and that you grow in the knowledge of Him. So it's a function of knowing who God is and developing a relationship with God. That is what produces this kind of faith. Now you remember when Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he told the disciples to ask, to seek, and to knock. And remember when we studied that, we saw that those verbs in the Greek are in the present tense, which means... He's not just talking about one time. The way we would say it is keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. That's what he tells them. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Don't give up. And 
As the reason why they should do that, Jesus talked to them about who the Father is. Who is the Father? He said, because the Father is who He is, you should keep on seeking, keep on asking, and keep on knocking, because He says... God loves to give good gifts. He says, everyone who asks, everyone who keeps on asking, receives. Everyone who keeps on seeking, finds. Everyone who keeps on knocking, to them it will be open. And he says, now what man of you, among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now, if you being evil, if you being sinners, if you having all kinds of wrong motives inside you, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? He goes, this, your impulse to give good gifts to your children is times a thousand to the heavenly Father. That's who He is. That's why you keep on seeking and asking and knocking. In a similar vein, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable to the disciples. And here's the point of the parable. That men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, losing heart is exactly what happened to the disciples here. They gave a command. The demon didn't come out. You know, the other ones probably did. And they give a command to this demon... The demon gives them the raspberry. He says, I'm not going anywhere. And they give up. The oil is not working. So they give up. He says, you ought not to give up, Jesus said. Men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he tells them the parable of the wicked judge. you got a judge who doesn't care about anybody but himself. And there's a poor widow who needs justice. She comes to the judge. She's not powerful. She has nothing to offer, so the judge doesn't care. Now, that's basically the way the Roman courts were. It was The Roman court system was notoriously corrupt and full of bribery and other things like that. So it was easy for the people to imagine such a judge because those kind of the judges that they knew from the Roman system. But because this widow does not give up, and keeps asking for justice from the judge, the judge says, this woman's going to drive me crazy. And so he gives her what she wants. Now, that's another parable that we typically take exactly the opposite interpretation from what is intended. We go, oh, we see God is like the wicked judge. And if we pester him like the widow pestered the wicked judge, then God will get aggravated the same way and just give us what we want so we'll go away. I even saw a, a, in a book on prayer by a very, very, very respected uh, Christian author and somebody that I, I think is one of the greatest say, now they did have a co-writer in this case, so maybe it's attributable to the co-writer. But their take on that parable was to say, look, um, God is not like the wicked judge, but we're supposed to pray as though he were like the wicked judge. And I put a big question mark over there in the margin. <laughs> huh? Really? Really? God is not like this, but pretend like he is? Uh, no, I don't think so. The point of Jesus' parable is that, look, even the wicked judge gives the widow justice. His point is, God's not like that. God's the opposite of the wicked judge. And that's why you pray. You don't pray as though he were like the wicked judge. You pray knowing that he isn't like the wicked judge. And whenever God asks us to wait, it's not because of any kind of a wicked purpose. It's not because he's ignoring us. It's not because he doesn't care. It's not because he doesn't know what he's doing or he isn't powerful enough or he isn't loving enough. Wipe all of those reasons out of your head. Now, those are the things we normally think, and we may not articulate them. We usually don't articulate that, but that's what we feel like. We feel like nobody is listening to us. God isn't listening to us, or he doesn't care. I mean, that's what we feel like, and that's why we give up. We give up very, very easily, just like the disciples. It's exactly what we do. 
And so Jesus once again here is saying, I'm looking for some faith that does not do that. I'm looking for some faith that doesn't get immediately discouraged and sullen thinking, well, God doesn't care about me. I mean, why should I pray at all? Now, we don't say that, but you know good and well that that's what we feel. And that's what we do so many times. Jesus says, I'm looking for some faith that doesn't do that. I'm looking for a mustard seed, a faith that doesn't do that. I'm looking for a mustard seed, just a little bit of faith that presses in instead of turning away. And does it because God is good and loving. And doesn't just do it, you know, thinking, well, I have to aggravate God. That's what Jesus said, aggravate Him. (laughs) First of all, when we come as His children, it never aggravates God. It never aggravates Him. Sometimes He has to correct our motives. Sometimes we think we're praying from just great motives. And, you know, we aren't. We've got some things mixed in there that aren't really like Jesus. We aren't really seeking the right things. And so sometimes God has to correct that. Sometimes he simply wants us to learn to grow in our character by waiting and pressing in. This is all to develop the relationship. Don't you see that the person who presses in, who presses in and does not give up and doubles down, coming back to God even more, that that is the quality, that is the faith God wants to see. That is a person who knows God better than the one who immediately gives up because get discouraged. That is the one who knows God more. Okay? And so when Jesus says faithless and perverse, we start seeing that those, that phrase of condemnation has a range of meaning. And when we look at the scribes and Pharisees, we're looking at the very advanced form of faithless and perverse, which is open opposition, open stubbornness, intentional perversion of what God's doing. Like, remember when Jesus cast out demons and and they said he casts out demons by the power of the prince of demons? Now, that's advanced faithlessness and perversion. I mean, it's just knowing. It's just pure hardness. It's just twisting the truth around. But we start seeing that there are lesser forms of being faithless and perverse. And in its lesser form, as we see with the disciples, it refers to real faith, real faith that doesn't really know the Father like it should. And therefore, it gives up very quickly and becomes discouraged very quickly. Okay, that's a very mild form of being faithless and perverse. So it doesn't reject God's word, but it does in many ways fall short in its understanding and in its believing and trusting. Not necessarily in the theology that it affirms, but in the theology it lives out in real life. Now, every one of the disciples would have affirmed and believed the truth of what Jesus said when he talked about the Father back in the Sermon on the Mount. They would have affirmed, they would have said amen to what Jesus said about keep on knocking, seeking, acting. They would have said, keep on, keep on, uh, uh, you know, keep on believing amen to that Jesus. We believe that. That's the truth. They would have preached that. They would have shared that to others, right? So that's not where they lacked it. Where they lacked this kind of faith is when it came to doing it, living out that theology. Okay? And that's that's where we tend to fall down too, don't we? That's exactly where we tend to fall down. And when we do that, when we fall down in living out our theology, it's because we're tending to misread the character of God. We're tending to misread what God is doing in a given situation. And we're tending to misread what he wants from us in that situation. And we become discouraged and we give up. We also tend to miss the benefit that the Father intends for us in these kind of difficult situations. I mean, what great hero of Scripture did not have to go through episodes like this? 
And what great hero of Scripture do we not especially admire because they did? And they didn't give up, right? Isn't that what makes us call them great? It is. It's what makes us call them heroic. It's what makes us call them noble. It's what makes us look up to them. But we miss the opportunity when it comes our way. We don't see what's going on. We don't understand the moment we're in. We don't see who God is. We don't see what he's doing. We don't understand the opportunity before us. And therefore, we miss it. We miss it. Okay? So the faith that Jesus is looking for here is not the bulging muscles faith that shows off by doing great feats instantaneously and with ease. One hand tied behind my back. Hold my drink in this hand while I do an amazing feat with this one. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not a faith that's focused on our strength. It's a faith that's focused on the Father's strength, His faithfulness, His love, and His wisdom. It's a faith that knows the Father. And because it knows the Father, it never gives up. It never gives up. Okay? That is the faith that moves mountains. And it doesn't require great big muscles of that faith. Jesus says it takes a mustard seed. It takes a mustard seed. If a mustard seed of that kind of faith moves mountains over time, how much more would more than a mustard seed do? So we need to start with developing a mustard seed of this kind of faith. Okay? So this is the kind of faith that Jesus wanted to see in his disciples. It's the kind of faith he wanted to characterize the faith community that he was forming up. And it's the kind of faith he wants to see in us. So what is the first step then for us to develop a mustard seed of this kind of faith and to keep on going with it? Well, the first step is believing. Believing always precedes acting. Okay, Believing precedes acting. But we have to remember that believing does not mean feeling. Believing does not mean feeling. Believing does not mean that I just prayed, I just wanted this to happen, and nothing happened. But I really feel like God is just here and he's about to do something great. That's not what believing means. Because a lot of times, you know, most times in this circumstance, that's not the way you're going to feel. You're going to feel quite the opposite of that. Believing means believing what Jesus told us about the Father. He spends a lot of time telling the, the disciples and telling us about the Father. A lot of the Sermon on the Mount was talking about the Father and who the Father is. And therefore, how the disciples ought to respond to him. A lot of Jesus' discourses when he comes to the end of his ministry in the upper room... Like in the Gospel of John. These are the last things he's going to tell them. For he goes to the cross. A lot of that's about the Father. And about the relationship with the Father. His great prayer in John 17. Which he specifically says is a prayer. It's a prayer offered to the Father. But it is a prayer that is intentionally offered. So the disciples can hear it. So they understand Jesus as the perfect son about to go to the cross, what is his relationship like with the Father? So who is this Father? And what's their relationship supposed to be? So it means, believing means believing what Jesus has told us about the Father. Is Jesus truthful or not? That's the question. Is Jesus truthful or not? Does Jesus know what he's talking about? Or not, when he tells us about the Father. If Jesus knows what he's talking about, and if he is truthful, if we can trust him, then we need to put aside our feelings and our perceptions, and we need to receive what he has said. That means we take it into our hearts. We receive it. We embrace what he has said. And then we act. And what does it look like when we act? Well, we press into God. When we don't get an immediate answer from the prayer, we don't go away and we don't become scourged and weak 
We press in more. We press in more. We come to the Father more with more concentrated prayer, more looking to Him, sustained, pressing in, looking to Him in faith. And in some occasions, fasting. That's what the fasting is. It's not some kind of a work that impresses God so He does what we want. That's not what fasting is. Nor is it some kind of an ultra-spiritual thing that means you'll, wow, how spiritual you are. You fasted. There's neither one of those. Fasting is simply a way of, for a period of time, it may be for one meal, it may be for several, but it is a way of, of concentrating and really and symbolically turning away from the, what would be the normal rhythm of life to really press into God. So a fasting that's focused on yourself how spiritual you are, or what a mighty work this is, or this is like rubbing the genie's lamp. If I fast, you know, abracadabra has got to come out and do what I want. All of that stuff's carnal. That's pagan. You'll get nothing from that. True biblical fasting is all Godward. It is all Godward. It is all because who God is, who he is. Okay? That's what fasting is. And so we press in in that way. Think about the woman of Canaan that we just met back in Matthew chapter 15. She's a Gentile. She comes to Jesus. She calls him the son of David. She knows he's the Messiah. She, she wants uh, Jesus to heal her child. Okay. Now, not only does Jesus not answer her, he tells her no. He doesn't just not answer. First, he ignores her. First he ignores her, she keeps on, she presses in. Then he basically says her no. He says, I've been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. She keeps on. He says, it's not fitting to take food out of the children's mouth and to give it to the little dog, to the little dogs. Now, where are you and I at this point? How far down the road are we already having given up? He doesn't like me. He doesn't like me. I guess he's not the guy I thought he was. We're way down the road. She's not. She says, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs get to eat the crumbs from the tables. You know? She presses in, and this is why Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. That element. It's that element, okay? Nehemiah, think for him, about him. He's concerned about Jerusalem. God has prophesied through Jeremiah that after 70 years of captivity, uh, Israel's going to return to the land. They're going to rebuild the city and the temple, and it lies in ruins. He's very concerned about that. He wants to do something about that. And he begins praying about that along with a group of associates of his. They begin praying for that, that Nehemiah can go. And do something about it. And lead the effort to rebuild Jerusalem. Okay? And we know this comes about ultimately. He's a cupbearer to the king. The king notices his sad face. Which was a capital offense by the way. Um, did not. You, you showed joy in the presence of the king. It didn't matter what was going on. You showed joy. And then uh, miraculously the king says to Nehemiah. Let's him go. Go and rebuild uh, the city. But in between came a small period of time in which Nehemiah had to keep praying. A small period of time as in nine months. Nine months of Nehemiah and his friends pressing in to God in prayer before this comes about. Think about Hannah, the mother of Samuel, praying for years as far as we can tell. And she had great personal affliction. You know, her husband has two wives. Hannah is one of them. And the other wife, uh, you know, Hannah's barren. She can't have children. Uh, her husband does really love her. But the other wife just makes her life miserable and so forth. So Hannah has great personal affliction. And that personal affliction is all bound up with the affliction of Israel at the time, the affliction she feels because 
The leadership of Israel is corrupt. The worship of God is corrupt. The sons of Eli are completely corrupt. All of that's going on. And so her personal affliction is very much tied together with the affliction of true Israel, of of faithful Israel. And this is what Hannah is taking on her back when she goes before the Lord. But what does she do? She doesn't give up. She doesn't go away. She presses in. She continues to pray. She presses in. She presses in so intently in such a sustained way that Eli just, he thinks she's drunk, you know, because she's kind of praying out loud without thinking about it. But she's not. But God answers her prayer after we don't know how many years. We don't know how many years she's praying like this, okay? So you have this idea of pressing in is what the Bible means when it talks about waiting of the Lord. And that's a phrase you hear again and again in in the Bible. And in the Psalms, we have the prayer book basically for God's people. And how many times do you hear in the Psalms, wait on the Lord, wait for the Lord, wait on Him? One of the Psalms we sing a lot is Psalm 130. And that's the one where it says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits And in his word do I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. Now, that kind of waiting is not laying back and taking a nap passive. Waiting for the morning when you're a watchman on the wall is a very active thing. It's a very active kind of waiting. J.I. Packer says it's kind of like when you give a stay command to a well-trained dog. You know, if you have a really well-trained dog, we used to have a couple of German shepherds from, from Germany, and what you want to do is you put them in situations where they're really tempted to do something, like we would bring their food out, put them in a sit and a stay, bring the food out, set it down right in front of them, and walk off. And what you want them to do is just sit there, and of course they're just drooling, making a big puddle of water on the deck, but you want to see do they wait? Now, you, you answer me. Is that a passive sort of waiting, or is that an active waiting? It's an active waiting. And that's what God is looking for from us. Psalm 27, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. He will strengthen your heart. Wait on Him. Psalm 37, rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Don't get all hot and bothered because of wicked people who prosper. Wait on the Lord, keep His way. He will exalt you to inherit land. So that is what Jesus is looking for, even a mustard seed of. He wanted to see it then. He wants to see it now. We understand. We've heard. We know the truth. Jesus tells the truth, and he knows what he's talking about. Now it's for us to go forward. And when we're tempted to give up and be discouraged, believe what Jesus has told us about the Father and press in. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.